Hi, I am Martin, and this is Words That Change You. Words fly all around us. Kind words, silly words, angry words. And they do so all day long. But how often does something written or spoken really feed our souls? Wouldn't it be nice if beyond the noise we could listen to words that make a difference? Words that change us. In Words That Change You, we'll examine words, events, concepts that have impacted us lately and see whether we could not glean some nuggets of wisdom to feed on and some tools that apply that for our lives. Tune in and be surprised. The Semmerweis Effect I grew up right across the street from the famous Vienna General Hospital, a huge complex built in 1784 and thus one of the first major hospitals in Europe. Some of the most famous surgeons of their generation practiced and taught there. Therefore its outdoor spaces are full of busts and statues recalling those men and their achievements. Since my parents parked their cars inside that, as it is called, AKH, I almost daily walked by the bust, among others, of Ignaz Semmelweis. I would venture that most of our listeners do not associate anything with that name. But this Hungarian doctor working in Vienna in the 1840s is known as the, quote, savior of mothers because he drastically reduced the mortality of pregnant mothers from what was then called the childbed fever. It is worth delving a little deeper into Semmelweis' discovery, since there are valuable lessons to be gleaned, even for us non-medical people. There were two maternity wards at the AKH in Semmelweis' days. One was the, quote, teaching and research one, where professors worked and also taught upcoming medics. The other one was a more standard one, run by midwives who simply made sure that babies were delivered safely. What was striking was the fact that maternal mortality was significantly higher in the more prestigious research ward, so much so that women often chose to give birth in the street rather than having to deliver in that part of the hospital. But until Semmelweis asked some pointed questions, nobody could explain the difference, nor bothered to investigate. In true scientific fashion, Semmelweis sought to analyze the processes in both wards in order to see what was done differently in one from the other. The only difference he could make out was that the research and teaching ward also included a pathology section where corpses were dissected. So he wondered whether somehow what he called cadaverous particles made it from the dissecting table to the delivery room. His hunch was confirmed when a colleague of his accidentally cut himself with a scalpel and died of conditions very similar to those witnessed in childbed deaths. So Semmelweis began to institute a strict hand-washing routine for all doctors, and very quickly mortality rates dropped from 20 to around 4%. So far, so good.
Very quickly, though, Semmelweis came under heavy criticism. His findings collided head-on with the medical science of his day, which attributed illness to the so-called four humors, making each patient unique and not subject to any generalization. And since Louis Pasteur had not yet developed the modern germ theory that only happened about 20 years later, Semmelweis had no theoretical framework to explain his practical findings. Add to that the view held by some of his colleagues that, quote, a gentleman's hands are always clean, end of quote. Hence the idea of being required to wash or even disinfect one's hands was deeply offensive. We of course encountered similar arguments during the recent COVID crisis. To make a long story short, not only was his protocol rejected, but Semmelweis himself was dismissed from the Vienna hospital and had to retreat to his native Hungary. Only 20 or 30 years later, after Semmelweis had already died, were both his name and his theories rehabilitated. And as the years passed on, it became ever clear how much the medical community owed to him, as seen by the elaborate washing and disinfection routines which persist to this day in hospitals. It therefore has puzzled social psychologists ever since how, in the face of overwhelming evidence, his advice was rejected. And eventually they even coined the term Semmelweis effect or Semmelweis reflex to describe this phenomenon. In short, it describes the reflex-like tendency to reject new evidence or new knowledge because it contradicts established norms, beliefs, or paradigms. And this is probably where most of our listeners would say, I might not have known this Hungarian's name, but I have certainly encountered this reflex. I'm well aware now that as I proceed with specific examples of this effect, I will likely offend different ones of my listeners. One man's truth is another one's symbolized reflex. Because we all have blind spots and because we do not all share the same political opinions. But we hope that each one of us can look beyond the particulars and glean some universal moral lessons. Therefore, let me choose contemporary examples in order to illustrate this theory. First example, not only do I live in a country full of climate change deniers, even some of my closest friends fall into that category. Flooding in Pakistan, year-long droughts in Ethiopia, wildfires and snow in California. None of these events can convince these people that climate change is real. I could put forward theories why rejection of scientific or anecdotal findings happens in this case, but I prefer to leave that to each one of you to explain. A few other examples. I know a number of people whose close friendships suffered or even fractured over the question of COVID vaccination. It sounds silly, but both sides felt strongly enough about the issue that a compromise or a non-aggression pact were not possible, and no degree of scientific evidence could sway people. Just yesterday, we witnessed the 146th mass shooting in the United States. Yet it seems impossible to pass even the most basic gun laws, such as background checks in many states of the Union. 
This, in my view, is a good example where the rejection is based on particular existing norms, such as the pioneering spirit's right to bear arms, even if this norm from 250 years ago flies in the face of current evidence. A good friend of mine has spent a professional career studying anti-Semitism and racism, and she shows convincingly that tropes and behaviors in that field are resistant to findings of social scientists. It almost seems like those prejudices sit in a different part of people's brains. To avoid the danger of only pointing the finger at others, can't we also think of examples when we rejected evidence because of dearly held beliefs? How long did it take before churches, for example, took abuse accusations seriously? Apart from malicious denial, the very idea of abuse flew in the face of one's view of church. To this day, many of us are not ready to pay fair prices for products coming from the global south, simply because we abide by the old colonial norm that the have-nots have an obligation to satisfy the have's needs at literally cutthroat prices. The list goes on and on. If we ask the question why even we, intelligent and moral human beings, fall for some of these patterns of belief or behavior, recourse to social psychology can help again. Sorry for advertising my own field of study. One of many experiments asked people to compare a number of lines and to point out which two are of the same length. Their answer can be manipulated by having two or three contestants deliberately give a wrong answer before they are asked for their opinion. In a high number of cases, these people will then repeat that false answer, simply because of social pressure and a desire for harmony. In other words, it is sometimes difficult to espouse a view when it is in conflict with current views or practices, especially if some form of peer pressure is involved. How can we avoid behaving like Semmelweis critics? Being aware of peer pressure is already a first step. A crowd, a community, is not always right simply because they all agree with each other. The phenomenon of groupthink is well known, and it is all the stronger when the ties between group members are tight. As Annie Duke proposes in her book, Making Decisions, it helps to combine what she calls the inside and the outside perspective. To use biblical terminology, it is easy to see the speck in someone else's eye and not the beam in one's own. We therefore need wise friends and counselors to whom we give permission to point out our own blind spots, prejudices, and illogical thinking. As this week's quote-unquote homework, we encourage our listeners to ask themselves, how good am I at discussing views which seem to challenge my long-held convictions, norms, or habits? Am I able to listen, or do I resort to dogmatic reasoning? And if we are really brave, let us ask a good friend to point out where we are in danger of giving into the symbolized reflex.
This was Words That Change You with me, Martin Steinbereitner. It was produced by Fritz Lowy, Pirushka Kacha, Harry Kalef, and Jacob Dubibert. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Also feel free to leave us feedback or questions on Facebook under Einstein Podcasts. Until next time.